Welcome to Bible News Press. Our goal is to discuss biblical faith beyond cliches and buzzwords, whether such words are religious or political. Sometimes we sit around the table and fellowship. Sometimes we do a little time travel. It is all part of our journey with our Abba Father, who has given us the key to life. We do it with Jesus, and we do it together. Welcome. Hello, I'm Laura. Today we are taking a one-day break from reading through the book of 2 Samuel, and I am going to present to you a biblical evaluation of the phrase, It's not about you. I remember when, many years ago, my sister quoted this catchy phrase, It's not about you. She was not saying it to me personally. We were having a discussion about life as a Christian. And I remember thinking the phrase, not it's not about you, was not setting quite right with me. But it's hard to respond to in a discussion without having given it previous thought. After all, the phrase is framed to only give you two options, and it hardly sounds right to say, yes, it is about me. It's easy when dealing with the sinful, selfish natures of humanity to think that a position like it's not about you is the answer the way to put such selfishness in its place. However, I am going to make what I believe is a solid biblical case for a third option, an option which is based both in the principles of Scripture and in the reality of being ourselves. Let's begin with a negative comparison. I suggest to you that proclaiming it's not about you is a modern-day religious equivalent to the monks living lives of austere asceticism, thinking that was more spiritual. That is, the biblical concept of denial of self in humility before God and in human relationship is wrongly extrapolated to mean that we as ourselves, in as individuals, have no value because God is so much higher than we are in might and holiness. The scripture tells us otherwise. The scriptures tell us of our Father in heaven. See Matthew chapter 6 verse 9. When Jesus is introducing this model of prayer, it is in the context of our Father knowing those who are his children, see John chapter 1, verse 12, and knowing what we need and wanting us to approach him as Father. God is the Father of those who receive him, and we, as his children, have a part in this relationship. We are not automatons that he is playing with as a man moves lifeless pieces on a game board. He declares his relationship to us over and over. If you are in a relationship, it is partly about you. God, Yahweh, also frequently uses the marriage relationship in both the Old and the New Testament as a metaphor of his relationship with his people. Unfortunately, in the Old Testament, it's frequently because the people Israel are are portrayed as being a prostitute away from their marriage with God, such as in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20. But also in the New Testament, in Matthew 22, in Revelations 19, and in Ephesians chapter 5, the church is portrayed as the bride of Christ. Obviously, God as husband is vastly superior in ways we can barely comprehend. But what we can comprehend is the ideal, intimate, loving relationship between husband and wife. The marriage is about both of them, but both together. The mystery is that this only happens when the husband and wife both love each other unselfishly. 
Well, God first loved us unselfishly in coming in the second person of the Godhead, the man Jesus Christ, to buy us back from the slavery of sin that we sold ourselves into. In fact, the imagery of us being made Christ's bride is astounding in so many ways. We are a bride that he provides clean wedding clothes for, for example, a bride that he sees as beautiful due to being washed clean by his blood, and a bride that he is patiently preparing for himself. We are supposed to respond in kind, in unselfish love, repenting of the sins that pervert what God created us to be in him. Yes, God is the beginning and the end, knowing all that was, is, and is to come, orchestrating all of history to fulfill his plans, but doing this in tandem with his sovereign decision to give us his image. We are both limited by our humanity and have the incredible responsibility opportunity to choose to be his bride. Those are wide-sweeping biblical examples of our part in this incredible saga of rebellion and the offer of reconciliation. And even there, with the concept of reconciliation of relationship, the fact of our crucial part is clear. Crucial because there is no reconciliation without two parties who desire to have relationship with each other. Is this something for us to be proud of or to feel magnificent about? To take a line from Paul? Certainly not. And we have the unfortunate example of Satan, who shows us that such a response to our creation and unique personhood is wicked and spiritually fatal. See Matthew chapter 4, where Satan asks Christ to worship him. No, our unique personhood only finds meaning and fulfillment in proper relationship with our God, Yahweh our Father, Jesus Christ our Bridegroom, and the Holy Spirit our Comforter and Guide. It is both mysterious and the only thing that makes sense of our existence. It fits with reality, even if we can't completely explain how. There is other biblical evidences of our part, our importance to God. Take John 3.16, He loved us enough to die for us. Philippians 1.6, He's going to complete the good work He has started in us. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4-6, through 6, He desires all to be saved. So He's speaking of all individuals. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Matthew 9, verse 36, he was moved with compassion for the multitude because they were weary. He was moved with compassion for each of them. Matthew 18, verse 12, he gives the parable of leaving the 99 sheep to just get the one. Matthew 10, talking in, that's chapter 10, talking about how we are worth more than many sparrows, and he knows the number of hairs on our head. He also tells us to tell him of our anxieties and to have hope. These are very personal things. Take, for instance, Psalm chapter 71, verse 5. The author talks about having hope and trust from my youth. Psalm 147, 11. God takes pleasure in those who hope in him. Isaiah 8, 17. Isaiah says, I will wait on him and hope in him. Acts 26. Paul is in custody. He has been arrested because of this hope that he's proclaiming. And in Romans 5, verse 5, it says, hope does not disappoint. In 2 Corinthians 3.12, it says, we have such a hope. But Matthew chapter 6, verse 23, points us in the right direction with how to apply all of this. It says, seek first the kingdom of God. It might seem like the answer to prosperity preaching is 
self-flagellation in the form of saying things like, it's not about me. But it is not. The answer is to seek God. Saying it's not about you is denying the very relationship that God is inviting us to be reconciled to, to him. Denying yourself and taking up your cross does not mean denying your attributes of selfhood in following God. It means not valuing your own temporary worldly pursuits and gain above your devotion to Christ, not even close. These temporary treasures are useful. He knows what we need, but we are to keep them in perspective. Again, Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, where Jesus talks about not laying up treasures for ourselves on earth. But then as he goes on and explains that, when he gets down to verse 31 and says, therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? Or what will we be with? What will we be clothed? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He's not denying that these things are a part of our lives. And then 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 emphasizes that there's nothing wrong with these things. Paul says, Charge those who are rich in this present world that they are not to be arrogant, nor have their hope set on the uncertainty of riches, but on the living God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Denying yourself means to have your priorities and your perspective firmly set on the much better and eternal hope of being with God in the future face-to-face without sin interfering and living in a place of sinless perfection. Our first hope and priority is God, just as a wife's first priority is being married, but in following God's principles, we are always blessed, each of us, in ways that will not happen without that. To use a very simple and limited example, dessert is really yummy, but if you don't have a basic nutritionally foundational meal, dessert makes you sick, both in the long and short term. God made many things for us as individuals to enjoy, but they are either empty or perverted without knowing God first. Mark chapter 10 is where Jesus talks to the rich young ruler. The story is also in Luke 18 and Matthew 19 and tells him that he needs to deny himself and take up his cross after he sells everything, because that's what that rich young ruler needed to do for his own spiritual growth. But Jesus looked at him and loved him as he told him these things. And then the rich young ruler had to choose his priorities. Now, the scripture says he walked away sad then. It's not completely clear what his final decision was. He was on the right track when he was first talking to Jesus, but hopefully he did not let the things of the world get in the way. So there is a saying that the difference between confidence and arrogance is humility. Listen to James chapter 4, verse 6, where it says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Be subject, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And obviously, it goes on from there. But then also in verse 10, it says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will exalt you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 says, Likewise, you younger ones be subject to the elder. Yes, all of you clothe yourselves with humility to subject yourselves to one another. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your worries on him, because he cares for you.
There's nothing wrong with being exalted, but the humble will not seek to exalt themselves. I am going to link to a, an essay on BibleStudyTools.com that gives a very thorough discussion of the meaning of humility in the Bible. The saying, it's not about you, is an attempt at humility, but upon examining the scripture, it is an unbiblical one. This is because it fails to differentiate between value and humility, or it equates thinking you have value with being arrogant. But the whole basis of the gospel is that we are loved so much. He values us because he made us, and we should humbly respond to that love, not distort the value in either direction. One direction is that we religiously debase our value in an attempt at humility, or the other extreme is to emphasize our value as something inherently glorious about ourselves apart from God, but both are wrong. I want to wrap this up by referring to what Jesus says in both Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, and Luke chapter 7, verse 28. This is where he's talking about John the Baptist, and he says, Among those born of women has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. None of the prophets or the priests or the kings before Jesus had the advantages of the new covenant that we do. Look at Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. But the new covenant is given to us. I want to end with reading a portion of 2 Corinthians called chapter 3. This is Paul writing. He says, Are we beginning again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some do, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being revealed that you are a letter of Christ, served by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tablets of stone, but in tablets that are hearts of flesh. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to account anything as from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the service of death, written engraved on stones, came with glory so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly on the face of Moses for the glory of his face, which was passing away, won't service of the Spirit be with much more glory? For if the service of condemnation has glory, the service of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For most certainly that which has been made glorious has not been made glorious in this respect, by reason of the glory that surpasses. For if that which passes away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness of speech, and not as Moses, who put a veil on his face, that the children of Israel wouldn't look steadfastly on the end of that which was passing away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains, because in Christ it passes away. But to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, seeing the glory of the Lord as in a mirror, are transformed into the same image from glory to glory, 
even as from the Lord, the Spirit. That is the Bible News Press segment for today, but not the end of our journey. 